This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. My words about reading the Scriptures, about preaching the Scriptures, and about the mission on which the Scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Willie Grills, here today with Zell and Heidi, and once again, the Reverend Adam Kuntz. Hey guys, how are you? How's it going? Everybody doing well? Excellent. Beautiful spring weather here. Yeah, not here so much. Uh, it's uh, winter part three. We got a couple days of spring. And <laughs> Zellin, how are things up in the tundra? We don't have parts during winter. It's just one continuous season. So, <laughs> but, like, should I should I feel guilty? Or I'm not really sure what what my feels are supposed to be at this moment. But um, <laughs> the weather it was like 75 today, so it's pretty pretty nice. Well, you know, first article gifts, man. Yeah, you can. You guys can assassinate me later on. Well, so. I mean, you know, I'm in Iowa, so I've got whatever Iowa has, and uh, Zellin gets all the nukes. So, you know, North Dakota is not the not the worst place to be, I suppose. Sorry, <laughs> 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 you're not you're not really exactly happy to be alive, but in case, of, just like, in case, it's it's a good place to be. Death, you're okay. <laughs> yeah. Look, everything's you know, glass half full, glass half empty, and. Uh, <laughs> And Zellin's people are nothing if not optimists. We are getting pretty far afield, though. (laughs) But we are here today to talk about people and the evangelism thereof, Uh, specifically about how we go about it, Um, again, what evangelism is. In the past, we've talked about the necessity of evangelism, evangelism as an essential function uh, of the pastoral office. So today, we're going to get into things like how we do it. Uh, why we do it, um, and for the sake of what. So let's just jump right in then and uh, talk about evangelism proper. What What is evangelism? Just a quick definition. Yeah, a lot of people when they hear evangelism are going to be thinking of maybe specific activities or even more specifically activities that they do not like, activities that they associate with a lack of faithfulness to the Bible, a lack of Lutheranness, maybe, and maybe they're right about some of those things. But evangelism properly defined is simply communicating the good news of Jesus Christ to somebody who needs to hear it. So that pertains in all kinds of situations and is really just about spreading a message which is biblically clear that Jesus Christ is the Savior from sin, that he is the Redeemer, that he is Lord, you're spreading that message to people in any number of ways that we'll talk about tonight. Yeah, certainly. And it goes out to different people. I mean, there there is a there's, you know, a one-time evangelism conversation that you might have, but then there's also a continual evangelism that happens uh, just naturally between the pastor and his congregants. Yeah, we don't want to think of evangelism as being the uh, the stick that we present at the door when we go knocking or something like that, and then we can move on to the next house. But evangelism really is part of being a Christian, having this message within us, this hope that is within us that we can't help but spread to the world. Yeah, it is it is tremendously important to say, and, and you brought it up as a shtick or, you know, knocking on a door, the gospel and the spreading of the gospel gets a very bad name from 
people who either spread a false gospel like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, or from people who spread the gospel in eager but ineffective and rather, at this point, very awkward methods, uh, street preachers, yeah, people knocking on doors and handing out tracts. I once was sitting at a Walmart just observing people, which is the absolute best way to spend your time and money <laughs> at a Walmart. And I was watching people come in and out and I'm sitting on a bench. And by this time, actually, this is a Walmart that I had been to many times in my life. That tells you something about me, I guess. And I was at this Walmart and I was actually a Christian at this point. I had not been many other times when I'd been at said Walmart. And this lady slides over next to me on the bench and she doesn't really say anything. She just hands me a tract which, you know, if you're not a Christian, you don't really have like tiny pieces of paper with like, like four pages of messages on them that you sit around and read. Right? Only my manifestos. Yeah, there you go. Only your manifestos, <laughs> right. right? So apart from my, you know, activity in the Communist Party USA, I wasn't familiar <laughs> with, with tracks. So she slides over to me and she's Mennonite, which is immediately visible. And she, she goes, I think you'll like this. You know, <laughs> and I think, you know, I think it's like, you know, I'm like a young guy, like I'm probably a degenerate, you know, she like means really well, but that's an ineffective method. But I think we have to be really clear that we are not critiquing. We're not sitting here and just sitting back and saying, well, there are people who do this thing really ineffectively or really awkwardly or in strange ways, and therefore we don't have to do it, right? Because we're not talking just about one specific method. We're talking about communicating the gospel regularly and frequently in the same way that we think of ourselves as, you know, well, we're Christians, so we read the Bible regularly, or we're Christians, so we, we pray regularly. We're just saying evangelism is an activity like that especially for pastors, but really for all Christians, that we want to communicate the hope that is within us. And the message doesn't change, but evangelism is a fluid activity. And it's an activity that does change uh, depending upon time and context. I mean, the fact that we're all sitting in far off locations from each other, and yet trying to effectively communicate um, with, with new and modern means of communication is evidence that evangelistic methods can do and really must change in some way. The message never changes, and the pure proclamation of that message never changes. However, some methods are, depending on time and context, more effective than others. Because in some ways, I mean, we don't want to elevate one particular form, as as you would say, as being like the method of evangelism, as if we just had this one particular way of doing things, and that was like, the best way, no matter where you are in every circumstance, because really, when you do that, we aren't really spreading a message in that sense. I suppose you could say we're spreading a method. And are we really having the content that goes behind that? That is that is the message. We are. And I think a lot of times, you know, you can make fun of the lady for having the tract, which is basically like, you know, 1910 Twitter. You can <laughs> you can make fun of the Mormons for knocking on your door. Although I, I'd be really careful about that because they're actually pretty effective with it. So as far as methodology goes, that's that's actually one of the best is that personal contact. But I think a lot of times in our church body, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, people assume that like the only method of evangelism that you really need is preaching the gospel in the divine service. And that's okay 
that is something, but especially in contexts which we've already reached in many parts of America, and I think in all parts of America, there are plenty of people who are here in this place of basically thinking like, I don't want to ever go to a church. I don't want to be there. I feel really awkward there. So the question is, if we're ever going to get them there, if we're ever going to get them to be faithful members of a, of a local congregation, attending the divine service, receiving the gifts that are offered there, we can't just use the format of the divine service with the pastor standing in the pulpit because we're not going to reach them in that way. So yeah, we have to be fluid about format. We're not at all fluid about the message. The message, like Willie said, never changes, but the methods have to change in order to reach people. We, we talked about Boniface last time. We also talked about St. Piran, and, and I still feel hey, really bad for him, right? But if he, <laughs> Viva Cornwall. Right, if, he, if, he, if he goes to Cornwall and he says, hey, I'm having a divine service, you know, those horrendous people in that, you know, miserable <laughs> peninsula, they're, they're not going to show up because they don't know what that is and they, they don't know why they're supposed to be there. So, <laughs> right, and they probably still don't because they're awful people. All of them, Mark Twain, chief among them, you know, they, they, you, you have to be fluid about the format. You have to go where people are in order to proclaim the gospel to them. So when we're talking about evangelism, we're not just talking about a method or a program or a church group or a certain percentage of the clergy roster. We're talking about an activity of communicating the gospel in which all Christians engage. Right. So that being said, we talk about the message um, never changing. There is a necessity for pure doctrine. You can be a good Lutheran and be evangelistic. What? <laughs> I, I mean, evangelistic. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm rendered speechless. Uh, please explain. Right. We look at men like um, Leia. I don't think anybody here is going to question Leia's confessionalism, even men like Walter, uh, certainly a man like uh, Friedrich Winniken, who goes out. Of course, he's one of the missionaries that was able to go out into a place and just say, hey, we're having a mass here, and so all y'all Germans come in. However, certainly a missionary zeal. Leia, I mean, in, in my part of the country here where I'm serving, you know, tons of churches that wouldn't be here if not for the efforts of Leia's uh, mission organization. Um, the history of the Lutheran Church in America is a history of church planting, evangelization, and mission efforts. Not just among Germans, but there were also Indian missions, uh, some of which are still um, in effect. Uh, there were English missions, which were very important. And there were, yes, there were some bumps in the road. There were some frictions at times. However, the, the Synod insisted upon purity of doctrine, but they also insisted upon new churches and reaching new people. Yeah, and it really comes down to if you're going to have an unchanging message that you're going to proclaim in any number of ways, you have to be certain of what that message is. And so it's not a, a matter of just scattering the word aimlessly as if we just throw whatever out there and hope for the best. It really is about intentionally proclaiming the clear gospel and having that clarity so that we know that what we are proclaiming. Well, you have St. Paul um, admonishing Timothy to, uh, or not admonishing Timothy, um, training Timothy in uh, sound doctrine and sound living. And that was for the sake of what? Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about it that way, it's like, why does Paul expend so much energy on Timothy? Why does Jesus pour almost three years into this group of uh, what appear to be often slow learners and his apostles? He's being so intentional about that teaching 
because he needs them to go to the ends of the earth. If Jesus were asking small things of the church, then yes, pure doctrine would not be important. But pure doctrine is not important simply in order to possess it in the same sense that it's really important that I have like an encyclopedic knowledge of like which units were where on the battlefield at Gettysburg. Yeah, to be to be correct for the sake of being correct is simply it's the same as being good at Jeopardy. It gets you points with certain people, you know, and makes you feel pretty good in your living room. But beyond that, you know, there has to be a, a greater purpose. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, besides lifelong aspirations that you've now crushed with me, <laughs> I, I totally accept your point. Because if you have an academic mastery of something, that's fine. But Christianity is not an academic exercise. It is the conversion of the world to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that, you know, every knee can bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And in order to achieve that, the gospel has to be not only known purely and deeply and truly, it also has to be communicated purely and deeply and truly to human souls in need of it. And and defended. Yeah, yeah. I mean, apologetics is, is part of all of this. So Jesus is training his disciples, so it's no coincidence that at the end of every gospel, um, and here on this podcast, we are firm believers in the entirety of Mark 16, all the verses, we like them all, they're all in the Bible. <laughs> Episode 51 will be about snake handling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Appalachia <laughs> represents. So, it, you know, all the Gospels end with some kind of sending. He is training them to send them. He is teaching them so that they can teach. He is communicating to them so that they can communicate to the ends of the earth. So there is absolutely no opposition between pure doctrine and mission. The pure doctrine is for the mission. The whole thing is for the mission of preaching the gospel. Would it be too much to say that if you have pure doctrine, but no missionary zeal, then maybe your doctrine isn't as, isn't as pure as it should be? Yeah, because the doctrine sets you in motion. It is not your possession. It is Jesus's doctrine, and he is teaching it to you by his spirit, through the scriptures, through preaching, through all the ways that we learn his word. He's teaching it to you so that you can go <laughs> with it. That's what he's trying to make out of you, somebody who will take it forth into the world. And this really brings up a, an often overlooked attribute of the evangelist, and that is education and training and knowledge. A lot of times, Evangelistic efforts get a bad rap because we, we talked about bad methodology, but it's also part of bad training. You think about some of the Methodist circuit riders and certainly the Campbellites and others who one of their big selling points was we don't want an educated clergy. We're going to just pick a guy up and send him out during the age of the Great Revivals, uh, during the Second Great Awakening. And that really wreaked havoc on a lot of churches and really caused a lot of, quite honestly, uh, depending upon the sect, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, early Seventh-day Adventists, for example, it really just caused all kinds of damage um, as far as the biblical knowledge and biblical fidelity of Christians in these Western communities uh, where, where a lot of these efforts were. So it's part of the reason, you know, maintaining that purity of doctrine really is entails an educated clergy, a clergy with some degree of training. And you don't want to send pastors out who aren't prepared for this battle that really uh, they're going to be engaged in with the world. 
Yeah, and when when CFW Walther in his lectures on law and gospel is talking about the necessity of pure seed, when he's talking about doctrine, concern for pure doctrine, which is all over the tradition and the official documents of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, when you see that concern, that concern is explicitly because the the sower, the preacher, the one proclaiming God's word is presumed to be active in spreading the seed. So if he's going to be doing that, the reason he's so concerned about pure doctrine is because he wants to use the best material he can, right? He wants to do his job with the best possible stuff he can get. But when Walther's saying that, Walther is assuming that he's active, right? That he's not just hoarding, you know, bags and bags and bags of seed in his barn and just, he goes into his barn every day and says, boy, I got a lot of great stuff in here. You know, he never plants, uh, he never works the field, uh, he never goes out. Yeah, I have so, I have my storehouse here, I've got my seed, and I have such a heart for the field. Oh, it's great. I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to go read crop reports. It's now. great. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I got it. I got it all. I mean, I have all the information. I'm the best theoretical farmer. I'm the best ag science guy you've ever met. But he's never actually gone out in the field. His boots never get dirty uh, and the seed never gets sown. So that's the guy who has all the pure doctrine but does not evangelize. He's he's hoarding the seed. He's got it. And maybe he brings somebody in every once in a while and says, hey, look at all this seed in my barn and shows it off. And people are impressed by how much seed he's stockpiled. But if he's not using it, he doesn't know what the seed is for. And again, we come back to evangelism isn't just simply going out to the grocery store and telling people about Jesus. Evangelism is continually evangelizing the congregation that God has given you or calling the wayward in. Calling your wayward members in is but a form of evangelization, re-evangelization if we want to use that. But this all, it's a holistic approach. It's a holistic understanding of the word evangelism. And, and maybe it's worth pointing out then that uh, evangelism is not an event in that sense. It's not just the one-time thing, but it is an ongoing thing. And if we if we think of it as an event, well, then, yeah, we will tend to hoard the seed uh, because, you know, it's more more important about having everything right. But if we see it as an ongoing process, as the, the farmer who plants, who tends, who weeds, who does all of these things, uh, then we can see them as in one continuous process, if you want to use that language. Yeah. Very good. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about every Lutheran's favorite subject, legalism. We'll be right back. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and Adam Kuntz talking about evangelism. Let's pick right up where we left off. Is an emphasis on evangelism legalistic or a symptom of legalism in some way? It is if you define legalism as anything that you do not like that sounds like something you need to do. 
So if my children knew the word, they would define legalism as my requiring them to clean their room or to brush their teeth in the morning or to wear matching socks to school. If you define legalism more coherently as anything requiring something for salvation besides faith in the finished work of Christ, then of course evangelism is not legalism. But what you find in objections to doing evangelism, they often sound very similar to objections that I'm sure both of you have heard by Baptists to baptism, or more generally by non-Lutheran Protestants to a Lutheran doctrine of the means of grace, the way in which God's mercy and grace in Christ reach us. So uh, sometimes Baptists will say, well, it sounds like you're saying that faith alone is not enough to save because you're saying that baptism saves. And Lutherans come right back and they say, well, you know, it says in 1 Peter 3, baptism now saves you. Often people are sort of nonplussed by that. They're not sure what to make of that because they've never thought about baptism that way. In the same way, we are not saying that you are saved somehow by practicing evangelism or you know, someone will be saved because of you, as if somehow evangelism is the work of man. But the communication of the gospel, especially to people who have never heard it before, is the means God has appointed. How will they hear without someone preaching, Paul asks. So when we're talking about evangelism, we're simply talking about the way that God has appointed for people to come to faith uh, in the same way that he has appointed baptism and appointed the Lord's Supper for the forgiveness of sins. He's appointed the communication of the gospel orally from one person to another as the way by which many come to faith. And and these are effective objectively. God appoints these means and these means are successful. People will come to faith through the preaching of the gospel. People are saved by water and the word and holy baptism. And people do receive the forgiveness of sins in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in his supper. Therefore, we don't need to debase ourselves and say, if we're going to be Lutherans and we're going to evangelize, then we need to lower ourselves to these worldly programs seeking to manipulate people or seeking to get you know, X number of names on a checklist of doors knocked on or something like that. Our doctrine enables us to go forth and proclaim this gospel without fear, knowing that God has promised to work through it in his own way and in his own time. Our task as pastors is to preach that unadulterated word and administer those sacraments according to the Lord's institution and wait and see what the Lord will do. But we must go do what he has called us to do and use the means and only the means that he has done that he that he has given us in accordance with his word. So that right there, in theory, should take away a little bit of the trepidation when it comes to an emphasis on evangelism. It is not your eloquence that is going to win somebody. It is the preaching of God's word that God will use to break their hard hearts, to give them a new heart, to bring them to faith, to bring them to a realization of their sin and their need for a savior, and to enable them to believe in the gospel that's preached to them through God's messengers. And as long as we stand at a distance from it and we think of it as some kind of something we don't do because we are not like those erroneous people who do X or do Y 
or do Z. And we could go through and I can tell you why, you know, obligatory shout out in at least each episode to D. James Kennedy. I can tell you why evangelism explosion was probably a bad idea in 1972 and is definitely a bad idea now, partly just because if I knock on somebody's door, they're not going to answer it. If I knock on their door and I ask them, are they going to go to heaven if they die tonight? You know, they're going to be like, well, I don't really care. Yeah, I don't right? really care. Right. Well, I don't, I don't really care. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter to me, whatever, who are you, weird guy. Yeah, hey, Mr. McFeely, get away from my door, all right? I don't care. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, 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 like a, it's like a chick tract, you know? A chick tract yeah. is, uh, they're actually very fascinating, but I have a collection of them, you know, just as, as the sort of odd bit of Americana, but these sort of Graham McNall uh, cartoons uh, seeking uh, to uh, win people to the faith. And they're sensationalistic. It's like a it's like a conspiracy theorist meets a fundamentalist Baptist, and they put them in a little comic book and, and uh, to be evangelistic tracts. And you think, was this ever that effective at any point in time, you know, in the 60s or whenever it started? Perhaps it was. But today, if you show people these sensational things, they're just going to they're just going to throw it away. They're going to they're going to put it in the trash. You know, it's and you and you, you know those are the easy ones. You know, to pick out something as sensational as some of these tracts, or or maybe something putting the best construction on it, uh, like evangelism explosion, that is a bit dated. But we could look at any any of the thing. Like, what's the newer uh, Anglican one um, that's popular in Anglican Alpha Course? Alpha Course, yeah. I mean, you can you can poke holes in that sort of thing too. Um, any any of these kind of gimmicky approaches um, that are almost immediately dated once they're published. When in reality, though, there, there has been a mode of evangelism uh, that has been the same since the time of the apostles, really since the time of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. You know, there, there are a few different ways, but it comes about through the public proclamation of the word, uh, through the catechesis in the, in the Christian homes and, and throughout the churches. And really, at, at the roots of any, evan- of any evangelistic method is what we see in places like Acts. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, and I know I know Zelwyn can speak to this in a second because we were just talking offline about a book that our listeners may be interested in, actually two of them, by an Anglican missionary from the late 19th, early 20th century named Roland Allen. His first book is called Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours, and then the response to that book in response to his uh, fairly vehement critics is the spontaneous expansion of the church and the causes which hinder it. Long title, different time, longer <laughs> attention spans. And one of his contentions is that the reason that Acts is there for us and the record of Paul's activity, especially therein, is that all the Holy Scriptures are written for our learning. So what the Spirit has given us in Acts is not necessarily like, okay, well, these are our church programs exactly, but you definitely have a record of methods. You have a record of how fervent they were. You have a record of how Antioch got the idea of sending out missionaries in a way that Jerusalem just basically sent out people to complain about other churches. They are exemplars for us. And once you understand that, once you understand that that's how Acts is functioning canonically for the church within the scripture, then you can understand, okay, this is not actually all that complicated. They're going from place to place. They're meeting people. 
they're funding the mission in order to keep people traveling. And as they're traveling, they're sharing the gospel with the people they encounter. It's not really that complex. But what you do see, which is very different, and and this is a point that Alan makes over and over again, what you do see in Acts that you don't see today is a constancy in kind of both senses of that word, in how they're sharing the gospel. They're doing it all the time, constantly, and they're doing it steadily, not in drips and not as just sort of a matter of a program. They're doing it, this is what they're doing. This is what they're doing constantly. This is what they're doing regularly um, as a matter of practice. So, I mean, just to kind of bring it around, like, if we are deterred from evangelism by the fact that some people are doing it wrong, then we should stop baptizing because some people are doing that wrong. And we should stop administering the Lord's Supper because some people are doing it with a cracker and grape juice sitting in their seats and they're practicing open communion. I mean, we should just stop doing a lot of things if someone else is doing it wrong. But if we find in Scripture that evangelism is the constant activity of the early church and of the apostles and of Paul, the most successful missionary of the church in the New Testament— then we should be wondering not like, oh, we don't why we don't have to do this because lots of people do it wrong. We should be wondering, how can I do this much better than I already am? Right. I mean we if we have this glorious truth, and we do, and if we have this great doctrine, and we do, and if we have the word of God in our possession, we ought to be out sharing it. Because what else is at stake? If we're not out there contending for the faith, the wolves will come in. And they'll come in. They'll steal our own sheep. They'll come in, and they'll and they'll uh, they'll go after the wayward. Certainly, it is very much our mission to go. And really, in preaching the gospel, in evangelism, uh, we are protecting people in a sense from these wolves. Zelwyn, I know I know that you just came off a reading of missionary methods. I mean, what am I missing? What what else does Alan say that that really struck home with you? Well, one of the things that I was going to bring up is that uh, one thing I found really interesting that Alan points out is that sometimes Paul's missionary activity, while always intentional, was sometimes uh, and was happening constantly, was sometimes almost by accident. For example, when Paul ends up in certain provinces in Asia Minor, I think, was it Galatians or something? like I can't remember exactly which one. He never actually intended to go there in the first place. He was he was kind of driven there uh, by a, for various reasons, but he ends up proclaiming the gospel clearly in that place, even in this place where he never intended to go in the first place. Let's use a better word than coincidence. We all know it. We've got a better word. <laughs> I'm just I'm just luck. The holy <laughs> shit. Yes, I know. <laughs> Chance. God's playing with dice. No, sir. No, you know what I meant. <laughs> I know. I know. Zolwin is outed as an open theist. What we're only on like episode eleven. Go ahead. <laughs> that's yeah. That's kind of amazing. I didn't even intend it. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that he points out. Well, another thing that he points out, I think, is really very interesting. Is that throughout the history of Acts and throughout much of the history of the church, there was never. There was never the sense of like, we have to put together a missionary society. And then that's somehow because I mean, he is speaking from the early 1900s, when this was much more of a thing. Through this organization and through all of this programming, that's how we're going to do the mission. He's, he, he points out that the, the gospel just went because it, it just by nature, it just goes. 
And so um, the church didn't need to be told to proclaim the gospel. They didn't need to exhort people to proclaim the gospel. It just happened. And that's where that title of the, the spontaneous expansion comes in, that this, this is a thing that we don't have under our control and that we're trying to force into our own little methods in order to produce what we think is Christianity. But it happens because it is a movement of the Holy Spirit. Well, and, and it is an interesting point that you raise here that that this early great expansion is coming from the local congregations, and it's very much operating in a time before structures and mission societies and that sort of thing. And in this day and age, it's still very much true, though, uh, that the local congregation has to take that the reins when it comes to reaching out to their community, particularly the pastor of the local congregation has to. What we saw with the mission society was a lot with the mission societies rather was a lot of really great efforts and a lot of really great things have been done. We've also seen mission societies be a detriment to mission and evangelism at times because you know depending upon the two mission societies um, there might be political things at play. There might be one mission society over here and another mission society over there with the same confession, and they might be at odds, um, you know, just just because of uh, their business model or the way they're or the way they're going about it. The earthly things that we invent to help evangelism can be good, but they can also be bear traps at the same time. Yeah, are, are we are we more invested in the thing the, the 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 things that we've built around the proclamation of the gospel and perpetuating that? Or are we actually invested in proclaiming the gospel? And that's kind of another one of his major points. Right. And that's kind of, you know, and without naming your know, names, I mean, we name like Alpha Course, things like that. But even Evangelism Explosion, which, you know, these aren't parachurch organizations by any means. But there's a lot of branding that comes along with modern evangelism that really doesn't really serve the church well in a lot of cases. You know, I, oh, I'm this type of evangelist and I wear this lapel pin or I wear this T-shirt as if that somehow signifies fidelity to the mission when it's really fidelity to a brand. Yeah, I think you also get specialization, right? So you have the you have the great tragedy that someone could be listening to this and think that this is just for the three of us because we are particularly motivated or particularly obsessed, you know, to put it less charitably, with this subject. And therefore, this is fine for us in the same way that as if the church is a kind of like a football team, a modern football team, and you have like a guy who just does long snaps, right? And then you have a guy, you have a guy who just, he's just the trainer for the offensive line. You have these highly specialized, you know, very sort of industrialized division of labor ways of looking at the church. What's happening in Acts is that the main character is the word of the Lord, which is growing and expanding, and there's all kinds of great stuff happening. And the word of the Lord uses the various people within the church using those various gifts, but they're they're given those gifts not in order to be specialists, but simply because that's how the Spirit has chosen to use them. There, there is not a conscious idea that missions is somehow that that's for like this group at the church or it's for those people overseas or it's just for the pastor the entire church is engaged in the mission within which different people have different gifts all for the sake of the mission of spreading the gospel so it's not like an optional thing any more than like winning football games would be optional for the whole football team 
right? Um, you can't just have the coach win the football game. Like the whole team has to win the football game. There's only one goal there. So there's only one mission for the church and everyone has his place in that mission. That one thing that we're all aiming for to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. As long as we're thinking about evangelism as a specialized activity, we don't get it. We just don't get it. And a lot of the dysfunction that I know that we could talk about within the church today results from the seclusion of missions and evangelism into parts of the church, which indicates that the church simply doesn't understand what its mission is. Right. I mean, it's another symptom of, of committee mindset. This is the baking committee. You know, this is the stewardship committee, committee, and this is the evangelism or the missions committee. Now, while for the sake of organization, that might be good, again, like you say, it comes back to this compartmentalization of the work of the church that we have, that we've bought into. We've very much borrowed it from corporate America or corporate Europe, whatever. It's not been the best because it's served to separate us even more. When evangelism is kind of the opposite, it it makes you look at someone face to face and sometimes on an individual level and have a chat with them when it's oftentimes much safer to be in a certain group in a certain area talking about a certain thing and just being over here and then meetings done, bang the hammer, ring the bell and we're and we're done. And so, yeah, very, very well said. Yeah, as long as you have the committee meeting and as long as you have turned in your envelope that has money for missions, it's like you've done your part. And that's part of it. And organization is part of it. And that's always good. But what we're talking about is simply sharing the gospel with people, actually, personally, verbally. That is part of being a Christian. And if we're doing that, then we're going to have a lot of joy in doing it in the same way that I have a lot of joy when I baptize people or when I give the supper to God's people. I have joy in proclaiming his gospel, whether it's to the gathered congregation or anyone else. So I think that if we think of it as an activity, which is our privilege, we're going to find a lot of joy in it. And it's not going to seem a burden and we're not going to want to specialize it because we're going to want to do it ourselves. Yeah, and if if you have the the paid missionary, for example, and he evangelizes because it's his job in that sense, because he's paid to do it, well, it's going to be obvious that he's paid to do it because there will be no joy. It's just going to be, he just does it and he doesn't want to do it. But if when we recognize that it is a matter of the gospel about this joy, this hope that we have, it isn't something that's just going to expend itself in the telling. It's going to be something that uh, builds on itself. We're going to want to keep doing it because it is a movement of the spirit that increases the more we exercise it. If it goes down, the more we do it, well, then we have to ask ourselves, why are we doing it? Good stuff. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. When we come back, we're going to talk about how we should go about this task of evangelism and really what we ought to do. We'll be right back. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly.
This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi and Adam Kuntz, again talking about evangelism. So we've come to the elephant in the room here, this big question, how do we go about this great task? Yeah, we, we have to go about it, first of all, with confidence. If we don't, if we approach this haltingly, hesitatingly, if we approach this as if we have something for which to apologize, people will sense that. And I'm not just talking about people who have, who possess the Holy Spirit, who have the capacity for spiritual discernment and can tell that we don't know our stuff or we don't know our Bible when we're speaking. I'm talking also about unbelievers. They will sense inauthenticity. They will sense that you don't care terribly much or you don't know terribly much about what you're talking about. Listeners have already heard that with me before when we've discussed pop culture. I don't know what's going on or what I'm doing. References are lost on me. I really don't want any of the listeners to be in the same boat when they're doing evangelism as I am when I'm trying to display my knowledge of you know 80s movies or classic rock references. You want to do it confidently. I think a lot of times Christians today are embarrassed, and they've been taught to be embarrassed to think of religion as private by a lot of things in our society. They feel like they're intruding upon someone's life by discussing their religion, and they're right. I mean, they are, but they have to get over the idea, first of all, that religion is a private matter. We think of religion as a lot more private than, let's say, like, you know, a sports affiliation. So we're totally comfortable sharing our love or hatred of the Chicago Cubs. Hatred is the only godly option in that case. <laughs> I think we'll all agree. Or Zelwyn will be totally indifferent. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty indifferent, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but as we think about that, you know, it's like that, that objectively just really doesn't matter relative to eternal salvation or damnation. But we've definitely been conditioned to think of eternal salvation and damnation, however public those events will be on Judgment Day, as private, as personal, as something that you don't really want to discuss with another adult, certainly under almost all social circumstances. So as long as we're thinking of our religion, of our God, of Jesus as, as private, we're going to be apologetic and embarrassed by talking about him and communicating that message. So uh, first of all, say what you have to say confidently and, and without apology. Yeah. I mean, all, all, all great stuff there. It's, it, it is interesting, you know, the phenomena of the privatization of religion, um, which is really a fairly modern um, invention. And the sports analogy is very good. And you, and you'll see this often, like say the Yankees uh, win, or in my case, let's say the Reds lose, as we as we often do. And note what I just said there. I said we lost. Well, I haven't picked up a baseball in about ten years, give or take, and I certainly never played for the Reds. And yet we use the term we when it comes to talking about our faith. It's almost always in the singular, possessive. You know, my religion, or or I believe. You know that sort of thing. And best construction on on the one hand is. Well, that's just saying that, yeah, I've made this faith my own. But oftentimes the language really betrays uh, what we're trying to come across. And that's, well, this is my own personal belief. And then subtly implying that you can or may have your own personal belief too. But 
at the very base of Christianity is a claim of exclusivity. Jesus Christ does not give room for private religion. Uh, Jesus Christ only has room for public religion, and push comes to shove, sword to the neck, public confession of said religion. And that's something that we need to look at. You know, you think about um, the martyrs, and really a martyr who is given a chance to speak his last words, like St. Stephen, for example, is really one of the greatest examples of evangelism. In the face of death, he doesn't proclaim, well, dear Jews, this is my private belief here. This is my own personal opinion. He says, this is the truth, and I am declaring it to you in the face of certain death. Yeah, and we have to see that not as arrogance. Right. Again, arrogance is, is a word like legalism that gets overused. Arrogance simply means arrogating, taking to oneself what does not belong to you. But when the New Testament talks about evangelism and when Paul is you know, hoping fervently that the word of God, which is not bound, will be preached in all the world, he talks about boldness. And that is a boldness which is given by the Spirit so that the messengers of Christ, wherever they are, whatever situation they find themselves in, are bold, not because they are arrogant or haughty or they're talking down to somebody else. They're bold because the message is important and urgent. That's why they're bold. In the same way that you would be about, you know, yelling that there's a fire in the building when you are the first one to see it. You are bold to shout in public if you need to for the safety of the people listening to you. There's a difference between self-will or this arrogance that we were talking about and between zeal. When we are motivated by self-will, about a desire just to like impose ourselves upon someone else, yeah, no, that is a problem. That's not what we're, what we're trying to do. But that zeal, which comes from the gospel, which drives us forward so that, like you said, if there's a fire in a building or something like that, uh, to flee from the coming wrath and to recognize that this we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. So now let's just take a look at some, some practical steps then and some practical principles for um, evangelism. How can one become comfortable? You know, what are some avenues that someone can use in which someone can uh, evangelize? Yeah, we're going to be looking at Acts. So to say this as kind of a general outline of what you're seeing in Acts, you can think of evangelism as happening in sort of two different sizes or two different venues. And one is public. So Paul lectures in the Hall of Tyrannus in chapter 19 of Acts. There's also obviously all the public speaking that various apostles and, and apostolic hangers-on are doing in the book of Acts. So you think about any public venue that is important or current you know, in your setting. We had a, a common acquaintance in seminary who was from Ghana, and he had evangelized in Uganda. And he could go from house to house because at a certain time every day, the whole extended family was collected in the home kind of around mealtime. And he could just go there and he's talking to, you know, 12, 15 people at a time. That's not going to be the case in every society. So what public proclamation looks like for you is going to depend on, you know, are you from a small town where you're going to see lots of people maybe in the coffee shop in the morning, you know, the farmers are there, or you're going to see them maybe at a basketball game, or are you in an urban setting where you're trying to catch people when 
you know, when they are available and they're much, their kind of social patterns are much more atomized, but there's going to be public proclamation of the gospel to groups of people, however they collect wherever you are. And then there's going to be private, you know, this is Acts, you know, says this as from house to house. Yeah. Well, hold on. Let me, let me, let me interrupt you there for a second. Let's go back to, you know, attending, you know, the ball game, sitting in the coffee shops. Let's, let's talk about um, some, our, our day-to-day here, what what does that look like? Some, spe- some specific opportunities where you guys interact with the community. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, um, evangelistic, but where you would actually see people and talk to them as if they were human beings. For me, that's meeting people at the park. You know, I take my kids and I'm just talking to people. It also happens for me in like coffee shops. And I'm not thinking here of like farmers getting together in, in kind of a diner situation, but people who are hanging out, you know, maybe they're doing work or whatever, but, but anywhere uh, that I'm meeting people that they're kind of comfortable talking to me. And I mean, I'm, I live on the East coast. I mean, people are moving pretty quickly and they don't, they don't like to be bothered necessarily, but they're still willing to talk, especially if you have something in common with them. Like, you know, your kids are all playing at this park or, you know, your kids are in this sport together or whatever. You know, that's not always going to be an evangelistic situation like right away. Generally in modern America, you have to gain people's personal trust in order to communicate because you don't have cultural authority by virtue of being a minister. In fact, you might have negative cultural weight by virtue of being a minister. You you need their trust and you need them to be able to have conversations about significant things with you. And that's probably not going to happen the first two, three, even four encounters, right? That's going to take a little bit of time for them to let you into their life. But that's why it's important to do things like go to events where lots of people are, go to, you know, if it's basketball or football games or whatever, where people are, where the community is collected so that you can get those openings. Sure. And Zellin, how about your neck of the woods? Is that is that going to pretty much be the same or are you going to see some differences there? Uh, pretty similar. I mean, the activities that occur in the small towns uh, tend to draw a lot of the community. And that can be a good way to meet people that you wouldn't normally interact with. Unfortunately, with the uh, the oil up in the, the larger city that I serve, people tend to congregate uh, rarely because of their work schedules. And so it can be a lot more difficult to get a hold of people in those sorts of situations where they're working six, seven, eight days in a row for very long hours. So, yeah, I mean, but otherwise very similar, you know, just trying to to meet people uh, where they do happen to 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 congregate. Right. Yeah. Where they where they happen to be. And even in even in my situation, which is a little bit removed, even from from uh, the two of you guys, the principle of finding people where they're at is the same, which seems like an obvious thing to say, but might not necessarily be so obvious um, in this day and age. And people are harder and harder uh, to read. You know, I I work uh, with a lot of people who work in meatpacking and odd hours and, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, five families to a household and they get in, they get off second or third shift, especially they're tired. The last thing they want to do is talk about churchly things or talk about Bible things. They just want to go sleep for a few hours so they can get up, see their family for a couple minutes and then go to the next shift. You know, so everything's a little bit different, but that principle is the same. Finding people where they're at, where God has called you to be, and meeting those people and reaching them out. And really, you have to know your audience and you have to know your town 
unfortunately, for <laughs> for some of them. I mean, you know, because we like to be home. We like to be where it's comfortable. But really, a pastor in a given area to a specific people really has to know his area and has to be out in that community. I, I don't believe that that's, that that's an option. No, it's no, not at all. It's not optional at all. And I, I, it's one reason that my congregation has recently been emphasizing um, updating and, and refining and clarifying our online presence. Because honestly, especially people who actually show up at our door, as well as people who just kind of contact me more or less out of the blue, they're coming to us. They are interested in confessional Lutheranism. They are interested in what Mount Calvary or Concordia have to offer because they have found us online. So to go where people are is also to be online and to have an interesting and eloquent presence there. Because without it, you're really just saying like this screen that people are staring at constantly, like it or not, they're staring at it constantly. This screen doesn't matter to me, and I don't need to communicate through that screen. That's fine. You can be a Luddite if you want to, but you're missing the opportunity that you have when people really are staring at their phones constantly to communicate the gospel. If only because, I mean, think about today. If you want to find out how to get somewhere, what do you do? Any of us. We don't turn towards paper maps. We don't turn towards the phone book. We turn towards the Internet. Uh, the internet really has become the dominating medium of our time. And yeah, we don't really, we almost don't have an option to neglect it. We have to speak to people in the way that they're actually seeking information and communicating. I, well, I mean, I'm I'm a little confused because I'm still spending thousands of dollars on Yellow Pages ads. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's we've always done it that way. So, you know, it feels comfortable. But yeah, not a lot of not a lot of fruit coming out of that. <laughs> right. And, and really, you know, that's that's an extension, you know, of your church. It's it's the image that the public's going to see yeah. first. And we're in an age where Google reviews can kill you, too. I mean, it's a, it's really a catch 22. This this technology thing. Uh, so, but absolutely right. Good stuff, guys. So yeah, so that's all part of this house to house idea. And that's what it looks like in the current year. And really, you got to know uh, your, you got to know your community, got to know your demographics, because that's your, that's your destiny. So, so back to this house to house thing, back to Acts proper. Is there anything more to learn from Acts as far as evangelism goes? You can see that the gospel is proclaimed constantly, as we were talking about earlier, but that in a variety of formats, it's going to take different kind of different ways of being proclaimed. So like when Paul is in a public setting, like on the Areopagus uh, in Athens, or when he's before Festus, later on other other public figures, he's going to give kind of a summary of the gospel all at once to make sure that this person that he might never get in front of again has what he needs. We're actually familiar with this idea from Walther's very influential idea in the Law and Gospel Lectures, which we've referred to earlier tonight, that you have to contain the idea of the guilt of sin 
and the sufficiency of Christ as a savior for sinners in every sermon in case there's somebody who is only ever going to hear that sermon. So he knows what Christianity is. He knows what the gospel is. And Paul is doing something similar when he has opportunity in front of people that he's not sure he's ever going to have the chance to preach to again. That's different from the sort of ongoing continual teaching that you see with like, you know, the correction of Apollos. You're not going to have to lay it all out all at once with somebody that you're going to be able to speak to again. Right. And we want to be clear here, too, though, that this continual teaching is also part of evangelism. And we mentioned it earlier before, but we really want to hammer that point home. We're not saying a pastor is failing when he is on when he is not on a street corner preaching and wearing a sandwich board. You know, a pastor often fulfills this obligation when he is patiently teaching certain people. I mean, even his members are faithfully teaching the inquisitors that might come around. You know, a pastor evangelizes in many and various ways. Yeah, and you also see the the opportunity, which I mean, any pastor is going to run into this sometime in his ministry. I would I would assume, like with the Philippian jailer in Acts sixteen. Yes, we will all run into that situation. Well, right, exactly. <laughs> been, you know, the earthquake, the the, the night long imprisonment. The instantaneous situation where a person is desperate, something has kind of forced him to a certain evaluation of what his life is for, and you're right there with him as that's happening. That has happened to me. Sometimes it's in the case of something extreme like suicide. Uh, Sometimes it's simply sort of a breaking in his mind, and suddenly everything has to be looked at, uh, you know, anew now. But in that case, Paul is ready to go. He's ready to go with a clear direction about what this man needs to believe in order to trust in Christ and and find salvation. Now, the man asked the wrong question, right? What must I do to be saved? But, you know, the answer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and all your household, um, is very simple. And Paul is ready with it. So yeah. this this pertains to, you know, Paul saying preach the word in season and out of season, right? You're you're always ready with something. You've got a little something for anyone who may ask. Yeah, and that's what really unites all of these things, the public and the private proclamation of the gospel. There are a few things that unite them. Uh, one would be the preparedness. You're prepared in season and out of season, so you're prepared for both of these situations. But what else is is common among them? Yeah, you've also got, you're always looking for the chance, right? So you've got the seed and you're looking for the chance to sow it. You're praying for the chance to sow it. You want to have that day when you can get out there and you can sow it. So you're always looking for an opening and you just have this desperate desire. Like you you just, you have to, I mean, we I think we talked about it last time, you know, Paul saying, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. Right. And that's not just like a like, I hope I don't fall into false doctrine, but like we're saying, false doctrine and lack of zeal for evangelism go together. Um, If you have the pure doctrine, you just want to say it like you just want to tell anybody you can. Right. So um, you're looking for the opening and you really want to communicate this. And along with that, you can hear something that I think makes it a lot better. And, And Zelwyn mentioned this earlier, and it makes this not at all a burden is just the joy of seeing it happen. The joy of knowing that God has a mission for humanity and you have gotten to be an infinitesimally small part of that 
amazingly huge thing. The Lord in his providence raised you up for just such a task. Yeah, you're looking around and the harvest field is like huge and there's all these other people working and and a lot of people are doing way more than you and and they always have been, but you get to be in the field. Like you get to be there doing your little part. It's it's the best. Yeah, even in the midst of the struggles and temptations and all the fiery arrows, there is some measure of joy to be found in fulfilling the vocation that the Lord has given you. Any last words, guys? Yeah, I just want to encourage anybody who's listening and for whom this, especially anyone for whom this is new, whether you're a pastor or a faithful layman, I just want to encourage you in this. I think that you're going to find a lot of blessing and joy. And if you're a pastor, this is really going to open a whole new perspective on your ministry about what you're doing and what you're interested in and what you find fundamental for your life and for your congregation's life. So that might be a little bit scary to think about, but it's something that's going to bring you immense joy and will make what you do a joy and and not a burden. This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. Adam Zellwin, Great discussion as always. I'm Willie Grills. If you like what you hear, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to message us, and we'll uh, do our best to answer them. See you next time, folks. God love you, and God bless.